How you guys doing today? Good. Well, we've got just a couple of more sessions here, and we're going to be um, wrapping up our series on contending for the kingdom. We're on part eight. I want to encourage you guys to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, 10 and 11. Today we're going to talk about the arguments, examining some of the arguments that you may run into. I've been teaching on uh, contending for the kingdom. We went into some end time stuff and talked about establishing the kingdom and preaching the kingdom. There's a lot of different ideas out there. And then last week, we talked about the transition of, or the purpose of the millennial kingdom being uh, missional in order to transition the earth to the new heavens and the new earth. And, and we, we brought up some ideas that have different opinions within the body of Christ about it. So I want to address the arguments that, or the kind of the things that, that we maybe have been taught or the, the things that we think that would maybe bump up against some of the stuff we've been looking at. Um, in, especially in the last two sessions. So let's look at Acts 17, 10 and 11. It says this, that then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews, and these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they noticed or they received the word with all readiness and then searched the scriptures daily to find out whether or not these things were so. How many of you guys ever heard of be a Berean? That, that statement, well, I just need to be a Berean. Or we want you guys to, to take a Berean stance. And a lot of times it kind of means just study the Bible. Study the Bible, you know, um, be, be a person of the word. It actually, the, the idea that the Bereans were fair-minded compared to the other churches, I want to I kind of bring this about. So Paul and Silas go into Berea, and they're speaking in the synagogue to the Jews who know the Bible, most of them, probably better than most Americans today know the Bible, right? They know the Bible, they know what it says, and they have an interpretation of what they're reading. Now, the reason why Paul was rejected when he would come is he would teach a contrary interpretation. He would teach something new, something they'd never heard before. And they would say, I've always been taught this, but what Paul's saying is different. And so the reason why they were fair-minded was because they received that teaching from Paul with an open heart, to, and then received it with joy, it says, and then they went home to search the Scriptures. In other words, the minute Paul started bringing a different kind of vein or a different interpretation of what they were, they didn't shut down. Now, we do this. I've always been taught this. And somebody comes up and he begins to teach something else, and we go, no, right? Don't we? So the position of the Berean was actually to go, huh, 
Maybe there's something to this. It doesn't jive with anything we've ever heard. This is brand new. He goes, maybe there's something here. So I'm going to hear what's being said. I'm not going to shut off. And then I'm going to go home. And I'm actually, my, my guess is, Paul is using Scripture and teaching them. And maybe they have notes. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But probably not notes. I like notes. But they have these Scriptures in their mind that he's bringing up. And then they go home and they say, God, as I study this, would you show me if what he was saying was true? So, so here's what happens. And so being a Berean, here's an example. I remember I was teaching um, the book of Revelation. This is a few years ago. And the subject of the rapture came up. And now there's all kinds of opinions about when the rapture is going to happen. And I was talking to an individual. I said, ah, you know, here's, here's my position on this. And the individual said, I don't care how many scriptures you show me, I know what I believe. That's not a Berean. Okay? This person, they're not open to, you know, they've just, that's, that's them going right like this. All right? And so I want to ask you, we're going to talk about a passage or a couple of things this morning that I know there's a real common way that it's generally interpreted, and I want to encourage you to be a Berean. To hear what I have to say, I'm going to present it about what I believe on a couple of issues and what I think the scriptures say, and I don't want you to just swallow the pill and say, Justin said, so it is, but I'm giving you scripture verses, and I do this every Sunday, specifically today when we're going to be bumping up against a few things, I want to encourage you, let there be a spirit of going, I've always thought this, but maybe this is true. And then searching it out and asking the Lord to help you. Amen? Okay. Here we go. What about the arguments? I want to add this <laughs> before we go into the notes. Paul warns us that at the end of the age, what people will do concerning doctrine and teaching is what they'll do is they say, I like a certain interpretation or a certain vein, and it says what they'll do is they'll heap up teachers that only teach that, and they won't listen to anything else. He says this in, in 2 Timothy 4.3, I'm this guy, I'm pretty solid on what I think on a few things, and my tendency is to only find people who agree with me and, have, and let their teaching kind of reinforce where I'm at. And I want, to, I want to encourage you, that's not fair-minded. That's not this place where we are teachable before the Lord. That place is going, okay, there's a person over here that has a message that's totally contradictory to this. And I actually want to see how they understand the Scriptures as well. Now, I might hear the whole thing and take it home and go, yeah, no, they're wrong. I'm conf But I don't ever remove myself from that. Right? Because if we do, we, are un, we get unteachable, and we will just heap up everybody who agrees with us, and we won't be open to anything else. Okay, And it's not the place to be when we're talking about the knowledge of God, when we're talking about the truth of Scripture that we can't understand without the Holy Spirit's help. 
We're not smart enough. Right? But he says he's going to give us the Spirit. He's going to lead us into all truth. And he does that as we search out the Scriptures and ask him to help us. All right? So be a Berean. Don't be the other guy that heaps up just teachers that they like and all agree with them and just, just shuts off to every other voice. Don't do that. All right. Now the arguments. So we're going to go down to number one here, figurative interpretation. So in what you know, I'm presenting, we're looking at a lot of scriptures that are prophetic, a lot of um, you know, book, book of Revelation, book of Isaiah, prophetic stuff, the Psalms. And some people say, well, that, hey, that's just spiritual. It's, it's figurative. It's not real. It's not literal a thousand years. It's not literal, you know, the renewal of the earth and gardens. It's more of a spiritual idea. And this is one of the number one arguments when we're actually looking at the kingdom being established on the earth and what we believe about it. Is there's a, a, a great uh, group or a large group of people that would say it's all figurative. Now, I addressed this heavily in part three of this series. If you want to look that up, I would encourage you, because I'm going to kind of skip number one here, because I already addressed it, but I wanted to bring it up. This is a valid argument. This is an argument you may have to wrestle with, okay, as you're looking at what you believe about the kingdom. So, if you want to review that, November 27th, part three of this series was Apologetic Expectations. And I took the whole second half of that message to address, should we interpret stuff spiritually or figuratively or literally? Okay, so I want to I point you there. Number two, the kingdom now argument. So there's a, an idea, when we're talking about the establishment of the kingdom, how it comes about upon, on the earth, is there's, there's groups that say there, there's an establishment of the kingdom that happens right now, and the degrees are all over the place about how much that's established now and how far we can take it, and do we need to wait for Jesus to come back, or do we have the Holy Spirit and have the authority now and bring the kingdom? So those sorts of ideas. So there's a discerning of current, coming, and future reigns of Jesus. Okay, so how is he reigning right now from heaven? How is he going to reign in the millennial kingdom, and then how does he reign forever? This is, is kind of all over. In my opinion, the Bible speaks of three phases of the rule and reign of Jesus over the earth. And this causes some confusion simply because it's easy to blur those together. I believe it's real easy to just kind of look at it all as one big rule and reign. So, Number one, here's how I understand it. And again, I would encourage you to some of these scriptures to look at it on your own. So number one, his physical reign in heaven right now at the right hand of God. This is a clear biblical precedent. It spoke about in the Bible that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Okay? Our resurrected king is seated in heaven, ruling at the right hand of the Father. And the main biblical character characteristic of his current rulership, wow, Justin, over his church is by his spirit. So right now, he's ruling and reigning, and the way that I believe the Bible mostly talks about this is how he's currently reigning over his church through his spirit. 
During this season of his rule, he is mercifully waiting for and orchestrating the full maturity of his church in conjunction with allowing the fullness of sin to come forth on the earth in the age of faith. So the Bible points at a couple of things. The church is growing up. It's maturing, right? You better give me a praise God on that word. The Lord's bringing us forward in maturity and holiness and understanding and power and authority. Unity. The Bible promises a lot of these things. That's kind of a, this growing thing that we're, we're moving into. At the same time, the Bible talks about what I believe is a clear growing of darkness. That wickedness will increase in the earth leading up to the return of Jesus. And I believe his leadership right now is orchestrating the church coming to its fullness and allowing sin to come as fullness before he judges. Second Peter 3 tells us he's patiently waiting so that as many can turn as possible before he comes and judges sin. All right? So I want to look at a few of these passages. Romans 8. So my point is that his rulership right now is mostly about the maturity of the church in love on the inside. Okay? And I want to, I want to look at a few of these passages. Romans 8.34. Let's look at this one first. Romans 8.34. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. So here's a passage he's talking about. He's ruling at the right hand of God. How is this applied then? He's making intercession for us. Okay? Now, how many of you guys are familiar with Romans chapter 8? There's a verse we all love in Romans 8. And it says this, that God uses all things for the good of those who love him, especially the idea is the hard things, the suffering. And, and Paul caps it off. He goes, this is true. And what's even greater is that he is seated in authority at the right hand of God to intercede for you to overcome suffering. Right? This is the idea that he has authority to pray for you and to give you power to walk in love in the midst of suffering. That's Romans 8. Ephesians 1. This is probably the most well-known passage about him seated at the right hand of God. I want to get it in the full context. So I only put Ephesians 1.20. We're going to read a lot more than that. We're going to start in Ephesians 1.15. So if you have your Bible open, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore, after I heard of your faith in the Lord... I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would know what the hope of his calling is, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Let's read a little bit further. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, for even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. So, if we take Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 here, Paul says this, when I heard about you guys getting saved and becoming believers, I begin to pray with intensity that the knowledge of who he is and his love and his power would so transform you that you would walk in the fullness of love for him. And he goes, he, he died and the Lord rose, raised him up over every principality and power and darkness and seated him at the right hand of God. Now, Paul says, this is why I pray this way. He applies it right here when he says, you once conducted yourself under the powers of darkness, but he has freed you from those powers. He sits at the right hand in authority over the powers of darkness that kept you trapped in sin. Right? This is the context of Ephesians chapter 20. And the context of him sitting at the right hand of, of God is all about you who once walked according to the flesh and with no power to overcome the spirits of darkness, now you do. He has overcome and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he, I goes, I pray to him for the fullness. That's Ephesians chapter 2, or 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2, is probably the other... I think maybe the most popular. He's in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2 we're going to look at. Let's look at verse 1 and then 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and of sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if we look at this idea, the writer of Hebrews is saying that he has endured the cross. He's the author and the finisher of our faith, and as his seated place at the right hand of God to bring about the finishing of your faith, he has power to do so. So again, and I have a bunch listed here that I would encourage you to go home. And what you find is the references to him seated at the right hand of the Father right now are all about kind of this. His authority to bring about the fullness of love in your life through his death and resurrection and through his seated at the right hand of God, which validated his offering 
on your behalf. Okay? So I believe that one's pretty clear, that, that primarily when we look at his rule and reign in heaven now, that's what it's about, biblically. That's what it's focused on. Now let her be coming, physically ruling on the earth. A major shift in his rule over creation will happen in the Father's perfect leadership and timing when Jesus will be given approval to exercise his rule over all the earth physically and bringing an end to the age of faith. This season of his rule will begin at his second coming. So there's a shift that he rules now in heaven at the right hand of God and how he rules. And a shift comes when he returns to the earth and begins to rule from Jerusalem. What does that shift look like? He will physically enforce righteousness. That's a huge shift. And he will remove the governmental influence of wickedness. Through partnership with his church. Yeah, we like that. He will lead all creation to prepare for the full integration of heaven and earth. I got a few passages on this. The main one I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 15, because I want to spend the majority of the bulk of the rest of our time on, on number three. So let's just look at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 23 and go through 28. He's talking about the resurrection, and he says, you're going to be resurrected each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. So there's a return of Jesus, then we're resurrected in like kind as he was resurrected. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father and he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Okay, now he quotes Psalm 110, and he says, he's going to, that, that behold, you know, seated at the right hand of God, he will reign as a priest and a king until he puts all enemies under his feet. That's Psalm 110, he quotes it. And he says, so that... What we believe is that every single enemy in every area of unrighteousness will be placed under his feet. This is a promise that was made. And we're awaiting that time. He goes, the only one who's not going to be under his feet is the one who gave him authority. That'd be God the Father. That's verse 27. He says, now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to the Father who put all things under him that God may be all in all. And I believe that's when he says he's going to deliver the kingdom back to the Father. All right, so we have this I, very clearly that there's a reigning of God that's a certain way, and then when he comes, he's going to come and then enforce every area of wickedness and every principality and power of darkness under his feet. The last one he'll destroy is death. That's why people still die today, right? So, if we look at the next portion of this, there's this waiting period where 
there's been a promise that all things will be placed under his feet. And that happens, there's a time period where then comes the end, Paul says. He's, he's currently ruling in heaven, but there's a time coming when he will come back, then comes the end, when he himself will place all God's enemies under his feet personally. That's the idea. Now, Revelation, if you're familiar with that, Revelation, if you want to study it, chapter 20 through 22 demonstrates this pretty well, that there's a return of Jesus, and he starts with, a, there's actually a great battle at his return, where he places the Antichrist under his feet. And then it says that he throws Satan forever into the fiery furnace, and the last thing he destroys is death. He throws death in Hades into the fiery furnace. And then it says, and behold, I saw a new creation. Right? So he personally, the idea is doing that. All right. The future reign kind of shifts a little bit again. So you have this reigning period where he is personally, physically, placing all the enemies of God under his feet. And then at the end of that time period... He returns the kingdom God to God the Father, restoring all of creation. Heaven and earth merge back together again, just as was promised in the garden. And at that point, there's a little bit of a shift again. Why? Because there's no more wickedness to place under his feet. And so the rule and reign changes a little bit. This season of his rule will be marked by the full maturity of his church in partnering rulership and the destruction and the elimination of Satan, sin, and death from the earth. He will present the glorious results of his rulership to his Father, and all of creation will rejoice as heaven and earth are joined together, fully integrated in an unchanging, eternal state of new heaven and new earth. Okay? That's the, kind of the third phase. I wanted to present that because sometimes it seems funny. Well, is he ruling or isn't he? Right? And then what, how do we... How do we look at that rulership now and apply it to our lives and what's, what's to come and that sort of thing? So that's what I want to offer you, these verses. How I see it is those three phases. And I would encourage you to, to study this out on your own. All right, number three, here's the big one. The annihilation argument. So there's a common eschatological position that many Christians hold concerning the interpretation of 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, which has been referred to by scholars as the annihilation of earth. This position holds that after Jesus rules the earth for 1,000 years, he will fully annihilate all of creation with fire and then create a brand new heavens and earth. I believe there's multiple problems with this idea, but let's read it because I'm sure you've heard this. 2 Peter 3, chapter 10 through 13. Uh, chapter 10. Chapter 3, verse 10 through 13, three verses. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, I think we can absolutely, if all we had was this verse, 
I don't think there's any other way to understand it. It's kind of like everything's going to be burned up, like totally destroyed. But we have way more than this. And we need to take all the way more that we have and look at this. And the Bible lines up, guys. It's not contradictory. Praise God for that. Right? And if it seems contradictory, it's because we're wrong in our interpretation of something. Okay? It's not because the Bible's wrong. And so we have multiple. Let's look at a few things that seem to contradict this idea. Letter A, it contradicts a lot of God's promises. The chief of these promises being the original promise of redemption made to Adam and Eve, which is a return. It's a restoration. It's not a destruction and something new. That's not what was promised. Let's go ahead and flip the page. God has made multiple promises concerning the internal inheritance of the physical earth. Abraham, to you and your seed, I'm going to give this land forever as an eternal inheritance. This chunk of dirt is yours forever. The city of Jerusalem, as an eternal place where a king would dwell. And, and all the promises that we see about it, he goes, this Jerusalem right here, mourn over her and pray for her because she has a destiny that the son of David will rule here forever. Right? Right? And so he goes, I want you to look at the physical Jerusalem right now, and I want you to understand this is the city of the great king where he's going to rule forever. So we're going, wait, if there, how does this work if everything's blown up and we rebuild? Or it's not even a rebuilding. It's just all, you know, totally something different. It disagrees with other passages about talking how the new heavens and new earth will happen. Let's look at those. Did you know there's passages in the Bible that talk about the new heavens and new earth besides that one. Let's look at Isaiah, which is where Peter is pulling from. So this is really going to help us because Peter's, isn't this interesting that Peter's presenting this like, don't you all know this? And we read this like, where did that come from? Well, that's because it's in the Old Testament, multiple places. And he goes, the Bible talks about him doing this. So let's look at those. Isaiah 65 and 66 is primarily where we're going to look. Isaiah 65, verse 17, says this, For behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Hey, well, that kind of seems like total destruction and something new. But look at what he says is going to happen. These are the shiftings. These are the things that will be made different, and we won't remember how it was. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for behold, I'll create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people as a joy. Now, guys, there's a whole bunch of time period right now where Jerusalem is not a place of rejoicing and her people a joy. But he goes, I'm going to make it so that Jerusalem, when you hear that word, rejoicing and joy enters your heart and you think about all the people in there that are just filled with joy. No more shall an infant live but a few days, nor an old man not fulfilled his days, but a child shall die at 100 years old and the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. What? 
He goes, one of the things that's going to happen when I come and make a new heavens and new earth is people are going to live a lot longer. Okay. Now, we'll, I'll take you for a coffee on that one. But the idea is, if people die at 60 and 70 and 80 years old, that's going to be a distant memory. But it's very common right now. And he goes, now, if someone dies at 100, we'll consider them super, super young. Okay, yeah, that's a big change from how we view things now to what's coming. They will build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the days of the tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my delect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Oh, okay, so here's something else that's going to change, is you're going to build a house and plant a vineyard, and no enemy is going to come and take it from you. Now, this is something that happens all the time. And he goes, that'll be a distant memory. You will dwell in safety, knowing that the house you build and the crops you plant are yours forever. Okay, that's different. You're not going to labor in vain. You're not going to bring forth children for trouble. Parents, how many of you are like, I don't know if that's like, I'm so worried about my child, where the earth is going, and what life is going to be like for them in 40 years. You guys ever worry about that? Heck yeah, (laughs) I'm worried now. I'm definitely worried about where this is headed, what sort of trouble and darkness and, and stuff is coming for my kids unless something changes. He goes, here's a change that's gonna come in a new heavens and new earth. You're gonna have kids and you're not gonna worry about what life's gonna be like for them. That's new. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Prayer is going to dynamically change. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. The animal kingdom is going to change. Okay, this is definitely something. New. This is, the, this is the idea. He goes, here's what we're looking at. All right, let's go ahead and go to the next chapter. I just wanted to spend a little time here because he's, he's making it clear how the new heaven and the new earth comes about and what it looks like. <clears throat> I want to start in verse 10 of chapter 66. If you want to read this all together, it's really helpful. If you want to start where he talks about a new heaven and the new earth and he talks about how it all comes about, through the end of, of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah ends with the new heavens and the new earth, just like the book of Revelation. All right, verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy for her, all you who mourn for her, that you may be fed and satisfied, that you may be drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. So you're looking at Jerusalem because I want you to stir up a spirit of optimism, (laughs) let's put it that way, right? That you would understand that one day from this city will come consolation and joy and and good things, right? Drink deeply and be delighted. Glory's going to come. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream Then you shall feed on her sides and be carried and dandled on her knees. You're going to be cared for and shepherded from Jerusalem. You'll be comforted there. 
Now look at this. Let's pick it up in verse 14. When you see this, your heart's going to be happy, and your bones will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and indignation to his enemies. For behold, okay, how's this going to happen? How's Jerusalem going to become this? For behold, the Lord will come with fire. Oh, that's Peter, right? His chariots like a whirlwind to render anger and fury and rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and each by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the the slain of the Lord will be many. Well, that's revelation starts with a battle. Right? For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all the nations and tongues and they will come to Jerusalem. Well, we've, been, we've read a lot of passages about this. I will set a sign among them to come is the idea. And I will take, let's look at verse 21. I'll take some of them for priests and Levites. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall Make remain before me, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that when from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, that all flesh shall come and worship me, says the Lord. For they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Wait a minute. Because... When I make the new heaven and the new earth, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge with fire. Okay? And, the sl- and by the sword and the flame of the Lord will be many. And I'm going to cast them, and we know many other passages, they're going to be cast into the fiery furnace or whatever language you want to use for that. But there's multiple passages that says we will be able to understand that forever. We'll be able to See that and understand the judgment of the Lord will remain before us. And so one of the ways that the new heavens and the new earth remain the new heavens and new earth is because we have before us forever the knowledge of his judgment against sin. And a new heavens and a new earth will be sustained through that. Okay. So let's look at a few other passages. So I believe, clearly, Peter's pulling from that. Peter's saying there's a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to come with fire, and he's going to judge. Now, it's interesting that Peter says, at his coming, that's when the fire comes. The common interpretation is, after the thousand years, that's when the fire comes. No, it says that at his coming. Let's look at Psalm, and I'm done. Erica, come on up. Or whoever was, I'm happy for any worship leader. How many of you guys are, how many of you guys know, I'm serious, like, I love being able to say, whoever comes, I know they're skilled and anointed. And that's such a gift that restoration has. Just a side note, right? Like, I am so, I love that. Psalm 21. <clears throat> Psalm 21, 9 and 10 says this, You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. You will swallow them up in your wrath, and a fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. So the Psalm 21 says that he's going to bring a fire upon wickedness, judging wickedness through fire. 
specifically wicked doers, wicked people. Psalm 50, 1 through 6. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and he's called the earth. He's, he's made a statement about the earth. From the rising of the sun till it's going down. And he's made a promise that as the sun rises, right? And as the sun sets. So sure, how many of you guys think the sun's going to set tonight? All of us, yeah? There's a sunset time. You can look it up on your weather app. There's one tomorrow morning too. He goes, as sure as you know this is going to happen, behold, I'm going to say something about the earth. Pay attention. Out of Zion, Jerusalem, a per- perfection of beauty will shine forth. And our God will come, and he won't keep silent, and a fire will devour before him at his coming, and it will be the very tempest all around him. And he shall call to the heavens above and to the earth that he would judge his people and gather the saints to himself who have made a covenant. Sounds like an end times deal, doesn't it? There's the rapture right there. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So Peter's pulling on this, right? Every time we see him coming, there's a fire, destroying wickedness and making a new heavens and new earth reality. Second Thessalonians, let's get into the New Testament, and then we're done, promise. It's a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It's a good thing, it's a righteous thing. And to give to you who are troubled rest when he, the Lord Jesus, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified with his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you is true. So all of the, you know, at least the ones we're reading, I haven't found one contrary. All the biblical writers believe that at his coming, there's going to be a fire that purifies the whole earth, a fire of righteousness and judgment. And in that way, all things will be made new. Let's go ahead and and, uh, read this. I put Revelation 21 in there for you. Erica, you can start. Revelation 21 is right after Revelation 20, if you didn't know that. It's a progression of the coming of the Lord and what he's going to do, his work. It talks about, specifically, him taking every satanic spirit of darkness and throwing them in eternal fire. Then taking death in Hades and throwing them in eternal fire to never be felt again. And bringing a purifying work to the earth. Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And the city of God descending. The promise given to Abraham. The promise given to Adam and Eve. That city comes down and is on earth again. And God dwells with his people forever. And it says, and those gates that go into that city will be open forever because no dark thing will ever come again. They could be open in safety. 
I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Now, 2 Peter says that the earth perished or passed away in the flood. Now, we know that the earth wasn't annihilated, but wickedness was cleansed from the earth. It passed away or perished. In the same way, there's going to be another perishing, a passing away. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There'll be no more pain. For behold, the former things have what? Passed away, perished. Through his righteous zeal and fire that comes, judges. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. Notice he didn't make all new things. I'll make all current things new. All new realities. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Lord, I know there's maybe folks have never heard this before. Lord, I pray that if there's a struggle, God, that you would show us the truth. God, I believe you've said there's going to be clarity by your spirit over the word. So God, bring it. Lord, I place myself before you. I don't have all the answers help me teach well lead well God I pray for this whole church family God would you give us a fair mind that we'd be teachable and that we'd be solid in the word bring stability in our day, what we believe and what we hope for. In Jesus' name. We're going to open up communion in the front and the back. I'm going to let Erica pray for a while and ask that our ministry team comes up. You need prayer for anything. Say, hey, look, I was punched out that whole message. I need prayer for my family. That's totally fine. Or if you want prayer, just say, I just, I'm confused on this. Bring me clarity, God. Have someone partner with you for clarity over the word. We just want to do a ministry time. Again, communion's open. Let's take a few minutes.